6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 38 through 40. Now God shifts from the creation in broad terms to one of its largest components, the sea, the oceans. And one of the most prominent features, about three-fourths of the planet Earth's surface is are the seas. So verse 8 says, Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth, as if it had issued out of a womb? What on earth is he talking about? Anyone know? Flood of Noah. The water that covered the earth did not all come from the rain. But the fountains of the deep were opened up. That water came out and later gets put away. So you even say, Who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth, as if it had issued out of a womb? When I made the cloud the garment thereof and the thick darkness a swaddling band for it and break up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors and said, Hitherto shalt thou come but no further and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. It's interesting how the oceans now are stable. The isostatic boundaries are such that a deluge like that can never happen again. But it's interesting God describes this all here. And who controls the tides within bounds? They're within very definitive mathematical bounds. See, the greatest geophysical uh, upheaval ever was the flood of Noah. And there's evidence of it all over the earth. Geological strata, fossil beds, all over the world are irrefutable witnesses of the, of the universal flood at one time. Uh, it's interesting, there's some, some Christian apologists say that uh, the flood of Noah was only a local flood, wasn't it? A universal flood. If they say, make that statement, then they're calling God a liar. Because God promised Noah that he'd never do that again. And if that was a regional flood, there's been lots of regional floods since. And what God was saying, I'll never do that again. What, a universal flood? And obviously God not only set the flood, but it's by his providential care that the uh, eight people were saved on the, on the ark and, and that the earth had, was replenished. How? By God's intervention. It's interesting how you find a description of all this, not just in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, not just here in Job, but also in Psalm 104. You might put that in your notes. In Psalm 104. Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The flood stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. and the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys into the place where thou hast found it for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over. They may not turn again to cover the earth. It goes on. Psalm 104. You might put that in your notes for this. It's a good comment on this. And, uh, Okay, but now God shifts to day and night, the whole sidereal situation here. He's going to, beginning with this verse and continuing with four chapters, God is now going to deal with the present processes that we all experience and, and, and that do constitute a, 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 it's a valid mandate. Uh, uh, it's a proper domain of science and uh, in, in concert with his commission to man to subdue the earth. 
And we're going to talk about the rotation of the earth in verses 12 through 15, the springs and pathways of the sea in verse 16, the breadth of the earth, how big is it in verse 18. That's one of the only questions we today can't answer. Most of these questions Job couldn't answer, we can't answer today. That's one that he couldn't answer and we can today, thanks to satellite measurements and so forth. We do know how big the earth is. The travel of light in verse 19, the dividing of light in verse 24, and the source of rain and ice and all that in verse 28 to 30, and the universal nature of the physical laws, which itself is an interesting insight, and electrical transmission of communications in verse 35. These discoveries, many of these discoveries were made by God-fearing creationists of the past, um, guys like Newton, uh, Mari, I'll talk about Mari in a minute, Faraday, and Morse, and so forth. Verse 12, hast thou, God, hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, or caused the day spring to know his place? The day, do you realize the sun gets up every morning in a different place? The sun rises at a different point in the horizon every day by the seasons. Who set that? Well, the precession of the earth. Yeah, but who organized all that? If it wasn't for the precession of the earth, if the earth turned a little faster, a little slower, life would be impossible. If the earth was a little bit close to the sun, it would be too hot. A little further away, too cold. It's at that place that the balance is perfect to support life. You can go through over a hundred ratios, which if they were changed a little bit, life's impossible. If the gravity on the earth was a little stronger, if the gravity on the earth was a little less, life's impossible. Almost every parameter that you start to model, you discover if you change it and follow through with the signals that changes, life doesn't work. It's an incredibly complex, intricate balance. And uh, that's what, in effect, God is dealing with here. Verse 13, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth that the wicked might be shaken out of it. It is turned as clay to the seal and they stand as a garment and from the wicked their light is withholden and the high arm shall be broken. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? Hast thou walked in search of its depth? <laughs> Back up a little bit here. The earlier things you talk about, uh, the light and darkness also is where it also gets associated with wickedness and so forth because the wicked operate where the light isn't shining. But uh, this issue of uh, when he starts talking about this, uh, the uh, secrets of the deep is very interesting because the secrets of the deep are still largely hidden. Oceanography is really in its beginnings. But it's interesting, the father of oceanography is an interesting story. Matthew Fontaine Mare was a young man and read in the Psalms and in Isaiah and in Job that there were pathways in the sea. There's pathways in the sea? That's a weird idea. So he joined the Navy, made that his calling, and he, he started, he got in a position where he got into the hydrographic offices and had them start collecting temperatures, all the ships at sea all the time, keeping logs, bring that in and try to analyze it. And he was the one that began to map that there are, you know, currents or pathways in the sea. And he did his whole career, the whole field of oceanography is built on his commitment from reading the scripture. He talks about that in his autobiography and so forth. And uh, anyway, verse 17, God continues, Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? What do we know about death? Not much. Got a lot of weird people writing stuff about it. Death is a mystery. It's a boundary. Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hardly. Death is still a mystery. Yes, I know there are books written about near-death experiences and all that, and take those with a great assault. Uh, be careful. But... Uh, See, science really hasn't made a dent here because there's very few people that came back from the death. And those that have, they don't listen to. (laughs) Jesus came back from the grave. He has the floor. So listen to what he has to say about it, you know. 
go on. But anyway, verse 18, God continues, Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Hey, Job, you know how big the earth is? Oh, no. Now we can be kind of smug. We have satellites and we know that the, you know, it's, you know, a sphere with 4,000 miles in radius and more or less, except it's a blade spheroid and we can measure it. And okay, great, because we have satellites. So that's one question probably of the, of the 77. There's one that we could probably muster a, a, a viable answer to. The rest we can't really, even today. Hast thou perceived the breath of the earth? Declare if thou knowest it at all, at all. Verse 19. And where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? That thou shouldest take it to the bound thereof, and that thou shouldest know the paths to the house thereof, and so forth. What is light? You know, it's one of the biggest mysteries in science. Uh, uh, it was J.J. Uh, Thompson that got the Nobel Prize for uh, discovery that light is a wave. And, uh, and I think it was 1937 later, his son got the Nobel Prize for proving that light was a particle. So light can behave as a wave, and light can behave as a particle, and light never operates the boat the same way, depending on how you're looking at it. And so it turns out that that's, we're suddenly in the area of, of particle physics, and does it get weird? We don't know a lot about what light really is. We know that all photons are immediately interconnected. Every photon knows what every other photon in the world is doing at that instant, no matter how far apart they are. That's bizarre. They call it, the scientists call it non-locality. And uh, it was a theory up until 1982 where they proved it in the laboratory. Strange stuff. I won't get into particle physics here except to point out that it, we are on the boundaries of reality itself. Reality has a boundary. It has a boundary on the macrocosm, the large sense, because we discovered the great discovery of 20th century science is the universe is finite. It's not infinite. It's finite. That's what the Big Bang gives testimony to and so forth. On the other end of the scale, this microscopic scale, there's a point at which you can no longer divide things in half. You can cut anything in half and get in half. You get to the point of 10 to minus 33 centimeters and you can't break it anymore. It ceases to exist after that. It's digital is the point. Wow. And they know it is from the way the mathematics works. It's digital mathematics. So it's, uh, I mean, discrete mathematics. So it's a uh, uh, strange stuff. So uh, God challenges Job. Do you know what even light? Do you know what to say anything about it? No. Darkness is the absence of light, we think. No. What about black holes? See, there is, God divide the, divided the light from the darkness. We naively think, well, gee, darkness is the absence of light. Well, it is and it isn't. Because you've got things called black holes that are so dense gravitationally that light can't leave them. It sucks things into them. And the whole phenomenon of mathematics of black holes is a big subject in, 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 uh, in uh, the frontiers of science and mathematics. Anyway, verse 21. Knowest thou it because thou wast, uh, because thou wast then born? <laughs> because the number of thy days is great? <laughs> Hardly. In other words, Job, where were you? You know, who are you, in effect, to theorize against God? Say, so who are these scientists, by the way, studying these things? in the absence of respect for the guy that did it in the first place. Verse 22, God continues, Hast thou entered, and I love this one, Hast thou entered into the treasures of snow? What on earth is that about? It has to do with warfare. Is there still some yet undiscovered physics of crystallography? We have not uncorked yet. Verse 22 and 23, God says, Hast thou entered into the treasures of snow? 
Or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? What? I thought he's talking about snowflakes and raindrops. And God's saying that they harbor some kind of treasure, some kind of secret that's relevant, that's been reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war. Wow, what's going on here? Now we do notice that in eschatological battles, battles that have to do, events that have to do with the end times, uh, we find hailstones being used. Joshua, God used jo- hailstones to wipe out Joshua's enemies. The Battle of Beth Horon, where the sun stood still, was those hailstones wiped out only Joshua's enemies. You want to talk about marksmanship? <laughs> God put those meteors in orbit thousands of years earlier, specifically so that when they entered the earth, they would clobber just the bad guys. Read Joshua chapter 10. It's, in, it's, a, it's a fascinating fascinating thing. And uh, uh, Exodus chapter 9, Isaiah 30, Ezekiel 13, several places. Uh, Ezekiel 38, the battle of Gog and Magog. And Haggai 2. And of course, Revelation 16. We have hailstones that weigh 100 pounds apiece. Think about that. That'll wreck your car. Yeah. <laughs> and yet... Also in verse 20, maybe there's a hint of still something else still to be discovered in the snow and the crystals and so on. Verse 24, by what way is the light parted which scattereth the east wind upon the earth? The whole idea that light shines on the earth affects the, affects the weather. And indeed it does. When we have sunspots, magnetic storms in the sun, we have Different radio broadcast emissions here on the you know the aurora borealis and you know on it goes. Uh, there's a connection here. All meteorological phenomenon are derived from light of the sun, the evaporation of the water, the clouds, and all that photosynthesis. It's interesting that even today, our most elaborate computer applications are applications of meteorology, and their failures. They still can't predict the weather. They can't predict the weather a week from now or two weeks from now or whatever, and yet they, with great pontification, they worry about global warming from those defective computer models. 18,000 scientists say, no, there is no such thing as global warming, but the liberals still, still keep hammering that as an excuse to pursue their agenda. Anyway, God continues, Who hath divided a water course for the overflowing of waters or the way for the lightning of thunder? To really get into this, we get into the most advanced fields of mathematics. We'd be talking about fractals. We'd be talking about, there's a field of mathematics, brand new, relatively new, called the theory of chaos. You know, a butterfly on one side of the earth can cause a hurricane on the other side of the earth. Apparently, random processes are not random. The thing is, such delicate balances, the smallest little change here affects everything else. That's sort of the flavor of what they call mathematically the theory of chaos. It, what it's really saying is that brand, there's two, math, two things in mathematics that we cannot find in the physical universe. One is infinity. We understand it mathematically. We can't find it. Things are not infinitely large and infinitely small. They have limits. And also the randomness. We discover there really isn't such a thing as a random event. And we know that from the Scripture, Proverbs 16.33, that the lot is in the lap of the Lord. Okay? So when you didn't win the lottery, that was the Lord's fault. Okay. All right. He didn't want you to win yet. All right. Verse 26, To cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness wherein there is no man, 
Yeah, it rains in the desert, even though there's no one there. Man's not helping. God's doing that. Right? Reminds me of this whole business when a tree falls in a forest. Is there sound? You know, that's a big debate. I mean, there's no sound. There's no sound if no one is there to hear it. Lots of physio. That's a, you know, there's a variation of that in our culture. That if, if, if a man says something in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, is he still wrong? You know? Okay. Why are flowers beautiful? We, we discover, we go down the deepest part of the seats where it's dark, there's no light. When they get light down there, it's beautiful. There's all kinds of colors, all kinds of exotic things. Why? No one's there to see it. They can't see it. There's no light to see it if they could. Well, why are flowers beautiful? Well, to attract the bees for pollination. That sounds good in grade school until you find out that bees are colorblind. So why are they pretty? Because it pleased God. It was made for His pleasure. It's not functional. It may happen to be functional too. That's not why they're beautiful. Certainly that's why not, that's why, that doesn't explain the variety. Verse 28, hath the rain a father? Or who hath begotten the drops of dew? It speaks metaphorically here. Out of whose womb come the ice? And the hoary frost of heaven? Who gendered it? The waters are hid as with the stone and the face of the deep is frozen. By the way, something you need to know. You know, if you study physics, you discover that almost everything expands when it gets hot and contracts when it's cold. If you have an iron bar and measure it at one temperature and you measure it at a higher temperature, it's slightly longer. Things expand when they get hot. That's why they have cracks in the bridge, you know, bridges. You know, so, and and you ha- you, you, when you have construction, you leave gaps to allow for expansion or contraction or whatever. Right? Everything in the universe, there's a couple of exceptions that go the other way. Um, but there's a weird exception. It's called water. Because water expands when it freezes. And it doesn't do it linear. It does in a very peculiar curve. If it didn't, life would be impossible. Life, uh, ice is an exception to all the typical rules of, of uh, physical chemistry. Because ice, when it freezes, expands. Therefore, it floats. Therefore, rivers freeze from the top down. Therefore, you have fish that can live through the winter, and so on. It's an exception. It's like a footnote in, the, in, in God's laws. It's interesting. And a strange, strange exception. Verse 31. Canst thou... Oh, this one. I love this one. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? Now, most of us recognize Orion... As that, it's that constellation up there. We often joke that he's the Irish hunter, Orion. Yeah. But it, anyway, it, 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 he's a, it, and that's just a label for a collection of stars. Constellations are simply labels we give to groups of stars. And we, they have characteristic rela- patterns so we can we use them geographically. Such and such is just north of Orion or something. We can find our way around. Just, they're convenient labels. The Pleiades, the seven sisters, as it's sometimes called, is a group of stars you can spot because there's a conspicuous little seven grouping. Unless you have good eyes or binoculars, you find there's more than seven there. But they're classically known as the seven sisters, or more properly the Pleiades. And Orion is another constellation that most of us know. But here's what's interesting, and a lot of people love these two because, gee, they're mentioned in the book of Job. Well, there's more to it than that. God says, can you bind the sweet influences of Orion and the Pleiades. You'll discover something if you're an astronomer or an astrophysicist 
and you study the stars, you'll quickly discover that those constellations are not really groups of stars. They just look like they are because some of those stars are very close and some are very far away. They're not really grouped the way they look because we're just seeing, it's like a crowd, we're seeing a group. They're not necessarily physically grouped. You with me? They're, 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 dis, they're spread by distances that are enormous between the members of that group. So it just looks like a group from where we are. There are two exceptions to that in the heavens. Where the stars are gravitationally connected. The Pleiades and Orion. And I was stunned when an astronomer pointed that out to me. Because that's exactly what he's saying. Can you bind the sweet influence of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? How on earth did Job know that? Or did the writer of this book know that? No, God did, and he's, made, he's, he's got the floor here. Then he goes on, verse 32, Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season, or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? The Maseroth, it's amazing how many commentators haven't done their homework. They don't know what the Maseroth means. They make, they make a few guesses. The Maseroth is the Hebrew term for what you and I would call the Zodiac. And what's that all about? The sun has an apparent path through the sky, through the air. And that apparent path is called the ecliptic. Fifteen degrees on either side of that, one hour on either side of that, so to speak, there's a band of convenience. Within that band, there are 12 groups of stars that have names. We know those names from the secular world. What's astonishing is the names are the same throughout all cultures on the planet Earth in the secular world. They go by different languages, but they're essentially the same legends and same stories, pretty much. What's interesting is they all date back to the Tower of Babel. What's even more interesting is they had names before Babel. We are familiar with the corruption of those names throughout pagan history. We use pagan names because they're convenient. If you, if you want to tell us, if you're looking for uh, a star, it's in the constellation of such and such. You, uh, 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 someone's interested, you know, it's a stargazer, who knows exactly where to look by the hour angle, the declination, and so on. Well, what's interesting, you all have, may have attended planetarium shows in which they try to tell you that, well, those, you know, here's, here's the Big Dipper. You know, that, that was what, that's called the bear, the Big Bear. Or be, what's a better example is Cassiopeia. It looks like a bent W up there. Well, that's the lady chained in the chair. And they try to tell you that those, those, those names are legends that the ancients inferred by the arrangement of the stars and nothing could be sillier because those, no way does that bent W look like a lady sitting in a chair. You follow me? They just have, they just have passed on traditions not knowing the origin. What you need to know in each of these clusters of stars is the names of the stars in the order of their brightness. And you need to know the names in Hebrew. If you can't find the Hebrew names, you can find the typically the Arabic names and make some guesses of how it fits together. And you discover something interesting. The, or, the names of the stars in the order of brightness suggest a story. The story can be embodied in a, in a picture that is associated with a group of stars. But it's not because of the arrangement. It's because of the names of the stars in the order of brightness. Now, 
you discover when you look at the 12 constellations, you discover that they portray the plan of God from Virgo, the virgin birth, to Leo, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you need to know the names. Why does Virgo, it's a virgin, and she's carrying an ear of corn in one hand? And, 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 and you remember what Christ said? And, and how is the virgin associated with an infant? It's a virgin birth. It gets complicated. I won't try to go through the whole thing. We have a briefing package called Signs in the Heavens. A number of the great scholars, E.W. Bullinger, J.A. Seiss, and two or three others, have written books on this in the past. We put a synthesis together and did a briefing package on it, if you're interested in this area. And, uh, but it, it's interesting. There is a widespread belief among the Persians and others that the, the Matzeroth was used to teach the children God's plan long before the Tower of Babel. What happened at Babel is that got corrupted with pagan relabeling. And that's what we're all victims of. Follow me? It also turns out those 12 constellations are identified with the 12 tribes of Israel. And the standards are associated with that. With, with the Judah, the lion of the, Judah's path was the lion, and uh, Reuben the man, Ephraim the ox, and Daniel, and so forth. And, and, uh, so, uh, there's, there's a lot of going, a lot, a lot of things going on here about the Matzeroth, which is the Hebrew term for the zodiac. Don't misunderstand. We're not talking astrology here. We're not talking that kind of thing. We're talking, uh, just the ancient background of the names of those groupings. Anyway, let's move on. We're down to verse 33. God challenged you, Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds, that abundance of waters may come to thee? Can you, know, can you change the weather? Yeah. Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, Where? Here we are. Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Who hath given understanding to the heart? God's asking him questions, putting him on the spot. See, he even challenges us to research man's ability to do research. That's what he's saying. Where did the brain come from? Is it sort of the equivalent thing? Who designed the language and the machinery that makes up our DNA? These are the kinds of questions that are being thrown at Job here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music